0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond.
2: I'm Spencer Brudig.
1: I'm Will Johnson.
2: This show contains graphic material and is
1: meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles.
3: Their case files of Deputy Mitchell line their cubicles, boxes upon boxes, are everywhere.
4: Yeah, when people talk about cold cases, they talk about um, it, there's no period of time, right? You hear some people say, "Well, it becomes a cold case after a year and you haven't solved No, that's not true.
5: It's late or early in the morning, 3:30, 4 a.m when Sacramento County Sheriff's Deputy Jeffrey Mitchell first spots the white van. He notices it doesn't have any plates, that it's unmarked, and it's out in the middle of nowhere, a rural, secluded part of Sloughhouse, California, where there's nothing around. No other cars, no buildings, no security cameras, and no people. Nothing, nothing except for this white van.
3: Jeffrey Mitchell was a person who was dedicated to law enforcement and really wanted that to be his career.
5: Madison Wade is an anchor at ABC 10 in Sacramento.
3: Being with the sheriff's office was a dream come true for him. He went to the academy. He quickly became a deputy and also was really dedicated to his job and was dedicated to serving the area he served. He worked the overnight shift and he worked alone. Uh, That has since changed in terms of protocol with the sheriff's office. —
5: On October 27th, 2006, Deputy Mitchell was working one of these overnight shifts, patrolling rural Sacramento County by himself. —
3: Where he was working that night, it's a very rural area. Slough House is full now of farms and some warehouses and homes. But there's not much out there, and especially in 2006, there wasn't much out there at all. And it was typical for him to be on patrol, driving around, checking areas where sometimes people would be doing suspicious behavior or uh, maybe a car had an issue.
4: Yeah, he was uh, he was patrolling the area. All this whole area is all just he just patrols yeah. in terms of calls for service in um, this district, which is a rural district, is. Uh, especially that time of night, maybe one, two, for the whole, for all the patrol units. This is
5: Tony Turnbull, a detective sergeant with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. So the work you do is more
4: proactive. Uh, people are maybe out here using drugs or they're doing something nefarious or they're stealing copper from some farmer's tractor or whatever it may be. It's a different type of environment. It's a different type of patrolling.
5: It's when he's doing this type of patrolling proactive type of patrolling, as Turnbull calls it, that Mitchell spots that unmarked van, a big white Chevy.
3: It was very early in the morning when this happened, 3.30 to 4 a.m. in that time frame. And a very rural area on a very rural road, you see a white van just parked on the side of the road. It doesn't quite make sense as to why they would be out there. And that is why he decided to make contact with that van and Check on on what they were doing.
4: At about three twenty-four in the morning, um, Deputy Mitchell had come in contact with a, a white van out here. Uh, he had um, on his computer had sent something to our dispatch that he was making contact with his white van. Um, on his uh, update, he put that uh, there were no plates on the van, and for what he observed initially, there was there was one subject.
3: Back then, it was typical for a traffic stop to just type in to dispatch, hi, I'm checking on this vehicle. Here's their license plate number if they had one. This van did not at the time, and so he sent a message into dispatch saying, I'm checking on this van, I'm here, here's my location. And then dispatch got back to him and said, okay, thank you. He then messaged again and said, everything's good.
4: That was the last update uh, that Deputy Mitchell had uh, provided uh, to dispatch. Um, about six or seven minutes later, dispatch hears his, his uh, radio uh, keyed uh, there was a, a clearing of the air a little bit. Uh, they'd done a welfare check on him. There was no response. About a n- minute later, you heard another one. Again, there was a welfare check done by our comm com center. Uh, there was no response.
3: And what they did here was a click. There's just dead silence, and sometimes that can happen. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that alarming, but there was just a a very off feeling about not hearing from him for several minutes now that they decided to have all units respond to that area.
5: It takes nearly 15 minutes for the first officer to show up on scene.
3: There were no officers close by to where Deputy Mitchell was. So it took 15 minutes to get there. The first officer found Deputy Mitchell on the ground. He was shot in the head. It was very clear there was a fight, a very violent fight, is what it was described to me as. And Deputy Mitchell was suffering from a gunshot wound to his head.
4: When they got here, they saw uh, Deputy Mitchell's patrol car uh, and Deputy Mitchell on the ground uh, suffering from uh, a gunshot wound. Um, At that point in time, they had uh, voiced that information out to everybody. uh, So everybody responded to the scene. Uh, They locked it down as best they could. Uh, they attempted first aid. Um, Jeff was flighted out of here uh, to UC Davis Medical Center where he was uh, pronounced deceased.
5: Sergeant Turnbull, who'd known Mitchell since he was in college, well before they ended up working in law enforcement together, remembers being at home, seeing his pager go off, and seeing his friend's name flash
4: across the screen, knowing what that meant. I was in shock to see his name uh, come across my pager. Uh, but at that point in time, you just kind of switch gears. You you put your clothes on and, and you get to work.
0: Walk
3: me back to when we first met Jeff. Um, what stood
6: out to you about him and how did you fall in love with him? <laughs> it's kind of a, a funny story, but I met him at a bar, the Hard Luck Saloon, when we were Um, young.
5: (laughs) Madison Wade recently spoke with Jeffrey Mitchell's wife, Crystal Mitchell Graves, who first met Jeff in the early 90s.
6: The guy I was dating actually got in a fight with one of his friends. And Jeff um, saw that I was upset by the fight, and he came up to me, and he asked me if I was okay, and he was just super sweet and comforting, and so um, I... I actually gave him my phone number that night, and he called me the next day.
5: After that, Crystal says Jeff slowly won her over, that they started dating, and before long, she realized she was in love with him. They would get married in 1995, and five years later, in 2000, they would have a son. According to Crystal, Jeff was a protector. He looked out for her and for their new family.
6: He's always super protective, but mostly, Honestly, just the most kind, gentle soul. I mean, he literally was so good to me. And he was so patient. And I mean, I'm the one that was kind of feisty and everybody would always tell me that, you know, you guys are total opposites, but he 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 loves that about you and he embraces it and he... he he complimented me. We complimented each other because his he, his demeanor and spirit was just where he could just calm me down. He just knew how to make me feel better instantly. We, you know, I never really re- believed in soulmates and believed in people being right for each other. And when they say opposites attract, in that regard, we really did.
5: When Jeff was first offered a spot in the sheriff's department academy. Crystal was initially concerned that becoming a sheriff's deputy might change him somehow. But according to her, it didn't.
6: He didn't. He he did not change. his. I could tell when things were weighing on him, but he was never temperamental at home. He was always a good dad. He was still always a happy person.
5: Jeff graduated from the training academy in 2000, was assigned to a correctional center for a couple of years, and began patrol in 2002.
6: But when he first got on after the academy, I did worry about his safety. I, in fact, wrote in my journal a lot about it. I stressed about it. And finally, I just came to the conclusion that this was no way for he or I to live, that this was his chosen profession. And I knew that in order for us to be happy, in order for us to, you know, have any kind of a semblance of a life, and for him to feel okay at work, I need to be okay and accept it. And I did. You know, it took, it took some time, but um, eventually it, it stopped bothering me. I stopped worrying about him coming home every night. I don't know, maybe that was naive, but um, I, we chose to live our life in happiness, not in fear.
5: 14 years later, Crystal still remembers in vivid detail, being woken up in the early morning hours of October 27th, 2006, the morning of the shooting on that rural road out in Slough House.
6: Well, that is a memory that is ingrained like a bad nightmare that just repeats over and over again. That's something that people who experience that level of shock and trauma, you Never, ever forget that. And that is 100% with you constantly.
5: She remembers waking up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning, hearing the doorbell ringing, and at first thinking it was Jeff.
6: My first thought was that Jeff had forgot his keys, which was weird. But then I'm like, looked at the clock and I thought, well, it's too early for him to be home. And then I, you know, I'm going through this process because I'm in bed and I'm startled and I'm a little scared. And and then I thought, well, maybe I left the garage door open, and our, you know, security was coming by to tell me I left the door open. So I went downstairs and, um, you know, in my pajamas, and my heart was already pounding because I was kind of nervous who would knock on my door and they just kept knocking. And then I heard people calling my name and I, we had these glass panes and windows next to our door that you could look out and see. And so I turned the light on and I looked through the panes and um, there was a bunch of uniformed people out there, but my eye first caught the name tag chaplain. So right away, I knew. And this sick feeling just washed over me, physically sick.
5: Crystal opened the door, already sensing the news that they were about to give her, news that she knew would change her life, her family's life, forever.
6: I just started screaming, you know, and no, you know. and. And then they came in um, and kind of guided me to sit down and told me that he had died.
5: While Crystal is being taken to the hospital to see her husband's body, officers in Slough House are starting to sort out what happened. How a traffic stop had turned into a
4: murder scene. From what we can tell from the evidence of the scene that we had looked at was there was a physical fight that Jeff had with um, somebody. Uh, could have been more than one person Um, uh, during the time of the stop at some point. uh, The evidence clearly shows that there was a a physical altercation uh, prior to him getting killed. Um, It was a violent one. And at some point, um, Jeff lost retention of his weapon or was fighting for it.
3: The detectives working this case told me that when you're dealing with an officer-involved death, an officer-involved shooting, where someone takes the life of a deputy or an officer, a lot of the times they say the motive behind the murder is someone who does not want to go back to jail, someone who does not want to go back to prison, or someone who does not want to be found guilty. Someone who is trying to get away with something is the kind of person that would take the life of an officer or a deputy who is trying to figure out what's going on with you. And oftentimes, that is the description of the kind of person that would take the life of an officer so brazen. And also, someone who would take their own gun. It's We're we're not sure if weapons were found, if any other weapons were found with this case, but what we do know is that whoever shot and killed Deputy Mitchell used Deputy Mitchell's own gun.
5: This detail, that Deputy Mitchell had been shot with his own service weapon, would spark some unfounded theories about what happened that night.
6: I had a lot of people in the beginning who would say to me, well, you know, actually they didn't say it to me, but there was a lot of speculation. Well, Jeff took his own life. He must have, you know, because he was shot with his own gun. And that was very, very traumatic for me. I understood and I'm so thankful that they, they investigated that avenue and people don't realize that they, they did. I mean, they turned our lives inside out. They dispelled and disproved that.
5: After responding to the scene of the shooting, investigators launch a manhunt for Deputy Mitchell's killer or killers. But at this point, they really don't have a whole lot to go on.
3: Back then, there was nothing around there. There weren't even any security cameras. Now we're talking about security camera footage being all over the place.
5: What investigators do know is what Deputy Mitchell had already told them, that their suspect or suspects were likely driving that white Chevy van. And because this is all happening pretty much in the middle of nowhere, because it took 15 minutes to get to the scene of the shooting, whoever's driving that van has had a 15-minute head start.
3: Well, they immediately started to search the entire area of where this happened in that really rural road in Slough House, and they immediately put out signs on the freeway that said white Chevy van, no plates, officer shot.
5: Crystal, Jeff's wife, remembers seeing those signs on the way to the hospital.
6: On my way to the hospital, there were these Amber Alert signs that were on the freeway that were talking about the white Chevy van, no plates, officer shot. It was very surreal, like, again, sick feeling just in your body the whole time. And almost then just like, this isn't like an out of body experience. Like this isn't, this isn't me. This isn't my life. This is not happening. (laughs) Um, But it was.
5: As the search for the white band continues, it's not long before a promising lead comes in, before somebody spotted it.
3: Just the next day, someone saw that alert sign coming back home from Tahoe. A couple was driving home and they passed by a highway and they saw a white van. It was stuck in the river, just down an embankment. And they called 911 and told them, we found what we think is a white van that you all are looking for.
5: The van had been spotted in the middle of the Cosumnes River. Not submerged, but apparently stuck.
3: I pulled up a picture of the white Chevy van found in the middle of the Cosumnes River, and the driver's side, you could easily get out. There was no water uh, stopping the driver's side from opening that door and getting out of the van. The tires aren't even fully covered in water. It's kind of tilted on one side, and you know, it's possible water got into the van, but the van is not submerged in water.
5: Where the van's located, this stretch of the Cosumnes River, It's about 20 miles away from the scene of the shooting, roughly a 27-minute drive when Madison Wade timed it out.
3: That is if you're doing the speed limit. It's not so close, but it's also an area that you have to know that area in order for you to drive down that embankment. It's a crossing. People do drive across that part of the river because it, it actually is low and cars can go over it most of the time. And so according to the detectives, they told me the person driving this van, whoever's connected to Deputy Mitchell is familiar where the van was found, familiar with the area, familiar with what's past that river. And what's past that river is, is a bunch of property, private property people own. I looked at it from a map. I can't cross the river in my own car right now, but I looked at it from a map and there's just a lot of property. There's you know, some interesting kind of junkyard. Property out there. Um, it's it's definitely an area that they now have a second crime scene, and so they had to shut down the highway for miles in order to find, you know, tracks on the road and footprints, and and take all the evidence they could from both scenes.
5: Even more surprising, more shocking than the location of the van being found in the middle of this river, is what investigators are about to find inside.
3: When investigators got there and got to the river and closed down the area, walked into the river, there's actually footage of a deputy walking towards the van. They had no idea what they were going to find inside and a very gruesome discovery was, was inside the van when they opened it up and found two bodies inside of the van. It just didn't make sense. Why are two bodies inside of a van when the water's not that high?
5: One of the bodies would be identified as the van's owner, 43-year-old Alan Schubert. The other, a 28-year-old woman named Nicole Welch.
3: Two people who are from North Highlands, which is very far away from where the van was found, but investigators did tell me, without going into too many specifics, that these two people are familiar with this area. Alan Schubert was in the driver's seat. Nicole Welch was next to him, uh, slumped over uh, between the you know, middle seat to the back seat area, and both of them are friends. They were not a couple, they were friends, and they both were dead inside of this van.
5: Again, this wasn't a deep river. If any water had gotten into the vehicle, it wasn't nearly enough to drown anyone. Alan Schubert and Nicole Welsh had died from something else.
3: Later, autopsy revealed that they both died from carbon monoxide poisoning
5: even though Schubert was found in the driver's seat and he was the owner of the van. Investigators now say they don't believe he or Welch were driving the vehicle when it got stuck.
3: Someone in that van, if you were alive, could easily have gotten out of that van and left the area. You wouldn't have gotten swept away in that river. There wasn't enough water. So it's very interesting that the person who the the van was registered to was in the driver's seat The other person, Nicole Welch, she was in the van as well, nearby, where the body was. But they could have gotten out of the car if they were alive. —
4: The two that were found with the van in the river, uh, Nicole Welch and Alan Schubert, were found deceased in the van, um, found in the river when the van was found. —
5: Sergeant Turnbull says their investigation hasn't implicated Alan Schubert or Nicole Welch in the death of Deputy Mitchell. As for their own deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning, He now says the van itself may have had something to do with that. But that's a possibility Turnbull only hinted at in an interview with Madison Wade. They, uh, after the
4: autopsy, showed that they had died of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, We believe there is a little more to that, and then I can't get really into specifics. Uh, But at this point in time, we have no evidence to really say that they were involved in Jeff's death at all. Um, initially, early on, I think it was um, put out publicly that the band was not related. Um, I think which was too early. Um, I, I think there's a very high likelihood that that band was related. I don't think it was a coincidence. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Uh, I'll just say.
5: So we don't know for sure how or when Alan Schubert and Nicole Belch died. But if they weren't driving the van when it got stuck in the river, it's possible, likely even if you ask Sergeant Turnbull, that they were already dead when Deputy Mitchell first stopped the van.
4: There is definitely a high likelihood, and that's one of the theories that uh, Alan and Nicole were already deceased um, when the van was out here. And whoever was here with them, whether it's one person that was driving the van or there was multiple people, uh, were trying to get rid of... um, The bodies. At that point in time, they didn't want to be uh, found wherever they were at uh, when they died. Uh, That is one of the working theories, uh, and it's a strong possibility that that occurred. There's evidence to suggest that.
5: With the evidence suggesting that someone other than Alan Schubert or Nicole Welsh had driven the van into the river, the search for Deputy Mitchell's killer, or killers, was still on.
3: They had a tip line where it was flooded with information. At first, they were looking for a person who had injuries to their hands. We have interviews, archival interviews of you know the sheriff at the time, John McGinnis, asking people, pleading with people to be on the lookout for anyone with injuries to their hands, you know, driving a white van. Of course, later, the van was found, so they definitely wanted to find someone who was connected to a violent struggle uh, They do have evidence from the scene, a very, as they described, evidence that was found in a very intimate location at the scene. When I pressed them on that, they couldn't go into much further detail. But it's quite possible that what that means is they have DNA evidence that they found on Jeffrey Mitchell. And that is definitely something, as we all know, in genetic genealogy testing, that is is a way that investigators are are linking cold cases and and solving them now. And so it's possible that genetic genealogy and possible DNA that was found on Jeffrey Mitchell could actually crack this case.
4: You know, after 14 years, we've made a lot of strides to be quite honest with you. Uh, To say there's no suspects or person of interest would be lying to you. Um, We obviously um, have looked at somebody, some people strongly Um, And they have not been ruled out yet. So, my hope is that uh, we continue to move that football down the field. We get to that point where it puts this investigation over the edge, where we're able to bring those people to justice um, that were responsible for Jeff's murder.
5: Sergeant Turnbull and the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department are adamant that even though 14 years have now passed since Deputy Mitchell's murder, the case is not a cold case. Still unsolved, but not cold.
4: Yeah, when people talk about cold cases, they talk about um, it, there's no period of time, right? You hear some people say, well, it becomes a cold case after a year and you haven't solved it. No, that's not true. Um, it becomes a cold case when you lose, as an investigator, you have lost um, evidential leads, um, tips, and leads that you can continue to follow and investigate. This case has not gotten there, it never has. Uh, we've always continued to work it. Um, And even though it may not be on a daily basis because there's new cases that come up that we have to work, especially the newer detectives, um, this case is always being worked. There's always people that are calling in tips that have to be cleared, that have to be followed through and that kind of thing. And um, there was plenty of evidence that was collected based on the fact that we didn't know a whole lot in the beginning. Right. So there is a plethora of evidence that was collected, not knowing whether it was evidence or not. So we've gone through um, a lot of that stuff, but there's still a lot of stuff to go through. There's always new technologies that come up that make uh, testing of certain things um, a little bit easier where you may be able to get uh, something from a smaller sample. Um, So that's something that we always continually look at, too, not only in this case, but other cold cases as well, as you know. Uh, so this place, this this case has not gone cold. It never has, so it's not a cold case.
3: Their case files of Deputy Mitchell line their cubicles. Boxes upon boxes are everywhere. They have a board with all their active homicides that they're working right now, and right above that is a photo of Deputy Mitchell, Crystal, and his son Jake. Uh,
4: and it's a daily reminder, um, just being in that office. And there's there's plenty of stuff there all of all of his case binders are right there so there's not a day to forget even even though you're working other cases and so there's always that small reminder you know of jeff and his family
5: and while sergeant turnbull indicates that they're close that the sheriff's department may be nearing an arrest exactly how far off that arrest
4: might be still isn't clear no, I can't give you an estimated time. Um, sometimes what people don't understand is the difference between solving a case and prosecuting a case are two different things, right? The DA's office, um, uh, they, they want to try cases that are, are going to be successfully prosecuted. So with that, especially in a case when you're talking about, um, you know, the death of an officer, a capital case, a death penalty case, uh, you're going to have um, 12 jurors that are gonna be very serious about the information, and they're going to have to make a, a, a decision on whether you know somebody gets the death penalty or not. So um, the the amount of stuff that a district attorney needs to get a successful prosecution uh, is a high bar. Um, are we there? I think we're close. I can't give you a time frame. Uh, but I can honestly say uh, we're we're probably not far away. We just need something or somebody to get us over the top. Um, Hopefully soon, but uh, if it's not, we're gonna keep
3: trying to find that. They both said, both the investigators said several times, someone knows something. And right now, in this day and age, you can submit anonymous tips easily. So whoever is connected to Alan Schubert, Nicole Welsh, a person or people involved in this case can easily help investigators solve this. It just takes one anonymous tip to set them over into that end zone, if we're using that analogy. And they also do have evidence that they are actively working on. I have not
6: gone and looked at the Binders and binders. I've seen them. Um, I have been offered to do, you know, see them anytime I want.
5: For 14 years now, Crystal Mitchell Graves has had to go without answers, or at least without satisfying answers, without knowing what happened to her husband that night who killed him.
6: I think that for me, there is this tendency sometimes to think I'm not doing enough to advocate for finding, you know, for my husband, but then I have so much faith in the people that are working on it, and I don't know that I would serve Jeff or anybody by going out on my own and, and, and looking for answers.
5: So life has continued on without those answers, and Crystal has found the strength to continue on with it to keep living her life and being a mother.
6: That's a survival instinct, I think. You know, it's a fight or flight.
5: And it's that fight to keep going. That's how Crystal says she honors Jeff every day.
6: That's how I live my life. That's how I do justice for Jeff. That's how I honor him. That's how I, I live because I know that he can't be here to do the things that um, that he'd want to do. So I, 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 I live because I know that I need to live for him too.
0: Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: This is Will Johnson along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig for True Crime Chronicles. Read what a story. And I'm just trying to piece together everything that goes on here and the timeline. But just to sort of make sure I'm on the right track, the working theory, at least one of them, is that somebody is that somebody could have driven this van or at least let it go down into this riverbank or river with two bodies inside of it. And because those bodies were in the van, that's why they presumably might have shot the officer in the story. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that seems to be the
5: likeliest scenario, and and we don't know for sure what happened, um, but it seems like the likeliest theory is that this person had two bodies in this van, and that's potentially what, what motivated them to kill Jeff Mitchell is they didn't want the bodies to be discovered. Then they fled the scene, drove into this river, sort of staged the van, and ran off.
2: And Reed, do you have any more clarification on where the bodies were actually located in the van? Like, were they staged in a seat or were they just kind of in the back? Do you know? The The tricky thing here is we don't have
5: a ton of clarity on, on much in this case. Um, the investigators have been pretty tight-lipped about, about what evidence they do have, but they have come out and said they don't think that either of the bodies in the van, that those people were driving the van when it got stuck, but when they were discovered, the body of Alan Schubert was in the driver's seat and the body of Nicole Welch was sort of next to him, uh sort of in the passenger seat um so so I guess that would suggest that you know whoever was driving the van, if it wasn't them did sort of stage the scene there
2: and you know read also i mean this really is like a worst case scenario from uh Jeffrey Mitchell's perspective. I mean he's out by himself in this rural part of northern California on these uh, on you know this smaller highway, and he comes across this you know white van. Do you know, based on his injuries, there was there a violent struggle that occurred, or was it a, like, clean gunshot that killed him? I mean, was there evidence of a fight that took place? Yeah, yeah.
5: The investigators have been really clear that there was a violent struggle, and so it's possible that in the midst of sort of a a, a fight that the gun was taken, or we don't know, maybe Jeff Mitchell could have been knocked out and his gun was taken. We don't know, you know, how that played out, of course, because nobody was there, but... Um, there is evidence that there was a violent struggle
1: prior to him being shot. To take a step back from the investigation and what happened, you know, we hear a lot from his wife and now widow and just how hard that is to listen to how they met and how she fell in love with him. That line about her seeing the like the alert as she was going to the hospital, like just totally hit me though. Uh, just that experience of finding out that you know this has happened to your husband, and I mean, I guess she was well, she was going to the hospital, right? Was that what she said? Yeah, yeah, she was on the way
5: to to go and see his body after being woken up in the middle of the night, and and it is really hard to hear, and it's sort of this parallel storyline of of she's going through this and and kind of coming to terms with the fact that her husband's been killed. While these other officers are on the scene, like piecing through this this violent struggle and and starting to do the investigation, it's all it's all happening at once.
2: And also to think that you know their six year old son at the time uh, is now a grown adult, and and he actually is still um, brings memories of his father and and photos of his father to a, a memorial. Correct?
5: Yeah, there's a memorial set up right on the side of the road where Jeff Mitchell was killed, and and it is. A place where where the officers who investigate the case said that they like to go and and sit and think about it. And and Jeff Mitchell's son, who as you mentioned was young when this happened, he's now a young man. And adults, he, he still visits there and he leaves photos and and memories. And it, it seems like just a peaceful spot for them to go and and remember Jeff Mitchell.
1: And Reed, just to wrap up, it's made very clear this is not a cold case. They're still investigating, and it almost sounds like there really is possibly someone or. Sp- some people or some evidence that they have that they might be able to act on at some point. Yeah, I know when I first um, heard about this case and I learned it was 14
5: years old, I I made what I guess was the mistake of assuming that it was a cold case because you don't often see a case that goes on this long where there still are leads and, and a lot of evidence that investigators are looking into. But the investigators are clear that this is not a cold case and they think they're close
1: to being able to make an arrest. All right, Reed. thanks for bringing us the story this week and also to Madison Wade at ABC10 in Sacramento. Spencer, where can people learn more about True Crime Chronicles, more about Vault Studios, get involved in talking about these cases and more?
2: Yeah, you can check us out on Facebook. Uh, We have a group there called Inside the Crime Vault. Uh, So uh, it's a great spot to discuss this case and others
1: like it with uh, like-minded true crime fans. All right, Reed. thanks again. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.